Welcome to Tools for Liberty, a program designed to intrigue you, to stir your nerves, and to offer your mind critical thinking and adventure. I'm Jay Dylan Proctor. And I'm Anthony Alegria. Unfortunately today, Pastor Amanda is not with us here in Cord Purgatory. She is out of town. However, Theodore, who is a friend of St. Anthony of Egypt, has offered himself to step in. However, he doesn't really talk, so there's a few problems there. Nonetheless, Theodore does serve a very important purpose. He teaches people hygiene around here in the, the Jolton area. You see, Theodore is a skunk, and he has sort of a existential obligation to stink and to do terrible things. However, he chooses not to. And that's an important lesson for us all, the, the choosing not to stink as a skunk. Well, anyways, we have an exciting program for you today. We're going to be doing more than just talking if you stick around with us. Today, we're going to be discussing the ancient heretic Montanus and Montanism. And of course, this is going to lead us to a conversation of rebranding ideas. Then we will move along to Hot, Not, or Sanctified, and we will discuss pilgrimages and Anselm's argument for the existence of God. And then we will wrap up our program with a discussion on the Apocalypse. And when I say Apocalypse, I'm referring to the last book in the New Testament and what that has to do with Millennialism. All right, so let's go outside and let's talk to our resident anchorite, Athanasius, and see what he has to say about Montanus. All right, so I'm outside with our resident anchorite, Athanasius. Athanasius. Yeah, it's nice to see you too, man. Well, anyways, we wanted to know if you have anything on Montanus. Do you have anything on Montanus, the ancient heretic? I know you have quite a vast library in there. Ah, uh, thank you. Yes, it is quite weathered, but we'll be able to use it all the same. You're out here with a lot of bullfrogs, man. You, how, how well cultured are you for someone who's been walled up for over a thousand years? Can you give me a fist bump? Ah, oh, that'll do. Surprisingly well cultured. Yeah, Athanasius is surprisingly well cultured. And, of course, if you are not familiar with Anchorites, they are essentially, they're sort of like a monk, but they've been walled up and be... They become part of the church building. It's an interesting thing. A lot of times you see bishops and other clergy, they come and put a seal and they're officially there. Athanasius has been out there for what, like 13, 1400 years? It's crazy. And the ground is slowly coming for him. But anyways, let's talk a little bit about Montanism. And particularly, let's have a conversation about rebranding other things. We see people rebranding things all the time. And this is not necessarily an issue, but it can become an issue when people start rebranding moral issues. And contradictory to our modern culture, not everything is a moral issue. Take, for instance, this car we seen earlier today. It's an Infinity. Just this morning, Anthony and I were in the car in Nashville, and we spotted an Infinity SUV that is pretty clearly an undisguised test mule. In other words, it's something a manufacturer they're about to release, and they're out getting it ready. And it even had the manufacturer tags on it. And when we seen it, I was like, I'm not sure exactly what model that is, but the logos are covered up. You can see they've got tape over the model and a few different features of the car. And however, you can clearly tell it's an Infinity. I would guess it's a new QX50. But the reason why the Infinity is relevant is because Infinities are made by Nissan. And often there's a lot of rebranding that goes on between Infinity and Nissan. However, Nissans and Infinities, their automobiles, they're not necessarily a moral issue. They're in fact, there's something that if you enjoy cars, if you enjoy Nissans, you may be excited about Infinities. However, when we get to the topic of morality, it can become a big deal when we start rebranding things. So let's talk a little bit about this guy named Montanus and his two prophetesses that started a sect within Christianity that was quite a problem. So who was Montanus, you might ask? He was a heretic from the 2nd century, 
And of course, a heretic is someone teaching against proper theology and reason. And they are generally causing a lot of trouble when they do this. His heretical ministry began around 157 to 172 AD. So this is a little bit over 100 years after Christ. And after we see this happening, it's in the, the Roman world. We see this happening around the area of Phrygia. And he was not the only person involved in this. Montanus, he had two other ladies with him. Their names were Priscilla and Maximilla, and all three of them claimed to be prophets. And this is really what happened here. They claimed to be something of a prophet, uh, not just Montanus, but also Priscilla and Maximilla, and all three would give prophetic messages, and together they started a whole new sect within the church. But this caused major problems with their prophecy. Although they claimed to be prophets, their prophetic messages didn't take the traditional form we would expect. Generally, if we look whether it be in the Old Testament or we just listen to, to history, when prophets speak, they usually say something like, thus says the Lord, then they insert prophetic message here. So you would have something like in the book of Haggai that we're studying, you get things like, thus says the Lord, I am with you. You may see something like a first person pronoun used like I am with you, but it always comes after, thus says the Lord. It's, it's framed in such a way that the prophet is saying, this is not me speaking, it's someone else speaking. However, these three characters, Montanus, Priscilla, and Maximilla, they would prophet, they would prophesy in a different way. The, the prophet Montanus, he would speak in the first person. And this really spooked a lot of people, and they considered the trio to be possessed by demons. Now, it's really hard to find artwork depicting Montanus, Priscilla, and Maximilla, so we decided to go straight to the source and figure out a little bit what's going on for them. So let's go to them now. All right. And the Father. The Word, the Paraclete. Behold, the man is a liar, and I dart like the plectrum. The man sleeps, and I am awake. Priscilla, why do they say we have been <laughs> possessed by demons? Because the spirit has not been fulfilled in them. <laughs> well, 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 aren't they just a handful? There's something spooky about this lot of people. Uh, something spooky about them for sure. And we really had hoped to capture Montanus's face. Again, you can't really find good artwork depicting them. We'd hoped to find his face. And even in video format, we still can't get his face. He's a weird, weird one. All the same, there's something spooky going on with this situation for sure. And this really gets to the heart of the issues with Montanus. You might ask, you've talked about him, you've called him a heretic, but what was he teaching that was so bad? So there's just a few points that I want us to go over. The, the biggest issue he had theologically is he claimed that the Holy Spirit was manifested in himself and the two prophetesses, and that the Holy Spirit did not fully come at Pentecost. In other words, he said, it's coming inside me and my two prophetesses here, the three of us here, it's inside us. It's not in the past. It's not somewhere external. It is internal, and it's here and now. It originates here and now. And he was very strict about avoiding sin. He had rigorous rules for behavior, and if you listen to some of his teaching on sin and how people were to conduct their lives, it sounds a lot like the holiness rules and the things we do, especially in the Church of the Nazarene and other holiness churches. However, there was a caveat to this. The reason why he taught such rigorous behavioral standards is because he believed that if a Christian sinned, there was no atonement. It's over. If you indulge in sin, that's it. 
And also, rumor has it, and there's a little bit of historical claims of this, though that's hard to really find out accurate information on people living about 2,000 years ago. Also, there's a chance that prior to being a Christian, he was actually a pagan priest, and he essentially took an opportunity to rebrand his pagan religion as Christianity. And just to clarify the language, 2,000 years ago, we know a lot about certain people, but a lot of lesser people we don't know a lot about. And lesser figures like Montanus, it's hard to find out a good independent and, and third-person perspectives on this just because they're not that relevant in history, though he was relevant at the time. And we can't confirm that he was a, a pagan priest, but whether you look at him and you think that he is channeling a demon, you think he is rebranding paganism, there is a bigger issue here. He is claiming that the source of holiness was within himself, not at Pentecost, not from something external and not something in the past. And he's branding his own motives as Christianity. And if you brand yourself as, as something else, there's a huge problem there. And furthermore, he said, if you sin by my standards, there is no forgiveness, nothing. Now, it is worth noting that Montanism did eventually filter out, but while it was active, it did cause quite a problem and rope a lot of people in. And the reason why I want us to talk about this is we can learn so much from studying ancient church history, and especially things like heretics, because we still see this today. We may have to see Professor Resurrecto Mancer resurrect this particular heresy because it is prevalent today. And it's this basic idea that people take their own morality, their own motives, and they brand it as something else. They say, this is not my motive, even though it really is. They try to claim that there's something outside, like the church, that is originating from inside themselves. So there's a little bit of a logical disconnect, me saying the Holy Spirit originates in me, but yet it's it's still the, the Holy Spirit of God. And what's interesting is people who do this, they say, this divine morality is in me, trust me. They oftentimes don't have forgiveness. So this idea of rebranding our own motives is something that's not our own motives and then having no forgiveness. Anthony, what are your thoughts on this? The rebranding of our own motives as something you know, else. In a recent episode, we were talking about how, um, what, taking the name of the Lord's name, taking the Lord's name in vain really was, Yeah. you know, and this I could see really being closely associated with that. We, you know, like, you know, this is from God. God has told me to come and do this. It's like, well, has he really, are you attributing that to God correctly? Yeah. And, you know, I think that that could be really, really well closely associated with taking the Lord's name in vain. And, um, you know, honestly, we there's a lot of people today who will take that approach. You know, they'll say, oh, no, you can't ever be, you know, hard on somebody yeah. or anything like that. Or you can't ever be in the efforts of trying to actually change someone's life, you know, yeah. from their side, though. You know, like trying to get them to seek transformation. And, but, and you know, supposedly those would be unchristlike. Right. So it's basically this idea that morality begins inside of me. If you disagree, no forgiveness. You're, you're gone. However, building off of this, we don't need to be confused about morality. But then again, not everything is a moral issue. There are personal dispositions. There are personal persuasions that originate with that inside of us, and that's fine. A good example is this is another car that we've seen here in the Nashville area recently, and it's a truck. We have a picture of this, but I'll go ahead and describe it for those of you listening to the podcast. Essentially, what we have is there is a Toyota Tacoma, and on the bed of it, there is a sticker of a soccer ball that's pretty good size and then it also has a sticker of a spider though you can't see in the picture but it has a an hourglass shape on the back of the spider 
and I, for the life of me, can't figure out what they're communicating in this. This is not a moral issue, I hope, but I look at this and I'm like, what's going on? Did these people go to Walmart and say, I want stickers on my vehicle. The only two I can find is soccer ball and spider. Buy them. Let's put these bad boys on there. Like, what's going on here? I have no idea what's being communicated by this. And my challenge for you in the audience, if you can sort out what's going on here, leave it in a comment below. But tell me what's going on with soccer ball spider. I will say one thing that we can take from this is that, you know, we have no idea why the spider has been rebranded as a soccer ball. Yet you can tell. But at least it's not moral, you know. In the real yeah, world, people issue. rebrand things, and not you can't. It's not always as obvious as Sarka Ball and Spider, let alone the reason why. Yeah, so, and that's why I bring this up is because it's not always clear the reason why people are doing things. If you want to put a soccer ball and a spider on your truck, go for it. More power to you. It's not a moral issue. But when you start playing around with morality and putting incoherent things together and demanding people match that. Things can get problematic. Anyways, we'll be back here in a moment with a game of Hot, Not, or Sanctified, so stick around. Alright, well, now it's time for our next segment where we are going to get into church history through a game of Hot, Not, or Sanctified. In this segment, we will examine two items from church history. They may be saints, doctrines, or any substantial feature from church history. Then, after we present each item in an overview, we will go around asking if these are hot theological inspirations or not. In rare cases, when we cannot decide if an item is hot or not, we may simply state sanctified. And when we state sanctified, when an item is considered this, we are not saying that the item is necessarily holy, but instead we are saying that only God's sanctified judgment can rule whether it is hot or not. We're saying we're passing it up to God. Naturally, this last option is only to be used in the rarest of cases when the item is too far beyond our discernment. So let's talk about pilgrimages. In the modern era, we don't talk about pilgrimage, pilgrimages a lot. Pilgrims are people who they go on a journey for the purpose of deepening their spiritual disciplines. Now, when I use the language of deepening, a lot of times you think about something going in yourself. You may even think of like a, a cavern deep within to your soul. However, a pilgrimage is not a story that is the journey to the center of the self. And I feel like I should repeat that and reiterate that the pilgrimage is not a story of journey to the center of the self. By definition, the pilgrimage is something which is external. It's the pursuit of something outside of yourself. It is a way of deepening your faith, not by looking to the heart of your soul, but instead by pursuing something admirable. Maybe it's a holy site. Maybe it's going to a place where you can learn something and be educated. Maybe it's a spiritual journey to God's holiness itself. In the pursuit of holiness, we have this desire that something, as we get close to it, will transform our inner being. We live in a world where we are taught to pursue your innermost self, not to build your character based on external admiration. Again, in this season of Lent, we really need to take time away from where we're at throughout the entire Christian calendar and spend time saying, what can we do to deepen ourselves as we get close to Easter? So I want us to ponder making pilgrimages and think about a few historical instances where people have done this. When pilgrims came to America, they did this in pursuit of building a society built on virtue. And yes, there were issues with how, with how this unfolded, but 
the sentiment was that the original colonies were built by Christian pilgrims. They weren't built by atheists or anti-theists, as Anthony has, I think, correctly identified a lot of modern people. But they, they were coming here in admiration of Christ's teachings, and how could they turn that into a society? And if you look at the original documents of the original 13 colonies, you can really see that it's pretty much a church denomination of, is making up each colony, and they're basically divided up across those lines. Now, again, this unfolded in history, possibly not the best way that it could have. It certainly didn't turn into the Christendom that a lot of people may have expected, but it was something that is to be revered. We've been taught to hate the West and to hate our history here. Um, I don't think that's appropriate. We should embrace history, the, the good and the bad. And I think the admiration that drove a lot of the pilgrims was, was a good thing. I think that's something that we could admire and pursue ourselves. Also, we've talked a lot about Anthony of Egypt. And Anthony of Egypt has actually been training for a pilgrimage this Lenten season. So let's follow him for just a moment. Today, we make our pilgrimage, not to a place of sophistry or fake news, but to a place where the divine gift of critical thinking is embraced. All right. Well, that was a lot of fun. Anthony of Egypt, he's really been looking to more modernize his life. We need to, to send him to some YouTube videos on how to straighten up their their posture a little bit. He could benefit from that. But all the same, let's talk about pilgrims and pilgrimages. So let's let's do this. Hot, not, or sanctified. And you at, at home, the, the listener, you can decide and, and post back to us if you'd like. Anthony, what do you think? Taking a pilgrimage, is it hot, not, or sanctified? Well, um, I would definitely say that taking a pilgrimage is pretty hot as far as theological aspects go. Yeah, like, you know, the the idea of going on a pilgrimage. I feel like that would be actually provably I would say it's it's pretty beneficial for most Christians. Yeah, and I would I would say hot again myself. And the reason why is again it's not a journey to the center of the self. It is an external admiration and saying we are pursuing something greater than ourselves. We're pursuing the holiness of God. We're pursuing a holy site. We're going to go to a beautiful piece of architecture. We're pursuing something external so that we ourselves can become better people. And I think that's fantastic. We need to really embrace that. I think, um, you know, on a side note, that fellow from Egypt wasn't too bad himself either. No, he was not. <laughs> well, moving right along, let's go ahead to discuss another topic as we are in Hot, Not, or Sanctified. And let's talk about Ansem's argument for the existence of God. Now, we discussed this in 
our Midweek Liberty episode 29. We're probably going to go back and do a little bit more work with Anselm because it's it's a hard topic to give justice in just a few few minutes. But let's go to Anselm right now and let he himself be the one to share his argument and then we'll discuss it. I'm Anselm of Canterbury. My ontological argument for the existence of God is this. God is that than which no greater thing can be thought. All right, so basically we can wrap up Anselm's argument to that. God is that than which no greater thing can be thought. And he says this is how we, we know that God exists. Now, hot not or sanctified, I'll go ahead and let Anthony give his thoughts, and then I'll share mine. And as I'm sharing mine, I will go into some more details on, on what this means and what angle Anselm is coming from. Yeah, I was going to say myself, just um, based on Anselm's angle, and I'll leave you to explain it, but based on his angle, I would say sanctified, for sure. It's, uh, it's a little bit beyond what I would consider myself worthy to be thinking about, but I do understand that it could be really valuable. Yeah. And I'm actually going to say hot on this. I like it. Anselm comes from the angle, not of 21st century, but he comes from the angle of the 11th century. And basically what Anselm is saying is, is that we, so many times in life, we don't start with this idea of we must empirically prove everything. In our modern world, we've been taught that empirical, which means reliable, reproducible, and verifiable, that this is the only thing that truth is. However, truth is something that is a component of empirical evidence, but there are a lot of things which are true that aren't empirically proven. And he doesn't start with this point of saying we must create an empirical argument. We've been taught in our modern world that if you can't empirically prove God exists, then you, you're wrong and you need to, to just be quiet and go away. We have a lot of anti-theists who have taught us this, and even a lot of practicing Christians have just been taught that they're, they're wrong. And that's really a shame. Anselm's argument is not an argument of converting people from atheism into Christianity. And nor is it our modern expectations of having a quick rhetorical device that can shut down conversation. We live in this world where people are, don't have debate anymore, and they use quick rhetorical devices to discredit one another and to, to shut down conversation. One of the things I hate in our modern day and age is the language triggered, saying these people are triggered by that or they're triggered by that, because it basically is saying, we have ruled these people crazy. They're reacting irrationally. Therefore, we can discredit everything we're doing. It's a quick, simple rhetorical device for shutting down conversation, and I don't like it. That's why I don't use the language of triggered personally, and I, I don't think our culture needs to. It's unhealthy. I'm not going to force people not to, but at the same time, it's, it's terribly a shame. Well, Anselm is not creating a rhetorical device to shut down atheism. But what he is doing is something which is a lot more clever than what we would give it credit for. Anselm comes from the angle of platonic forms, which is this idea that out there in the, the universe, there is an abstract form of everything. We can tell the difference between one chair and another chair because they, they have some similarity. We can see that the chair that you're sitting in, it may have wooden arms, it may be black, it may be a beanbag chair, it could be a, a couch. We can see that they are all sitting instruments because they have some simple form. And we don't go around proving platonic forms in just about everything that we do. This idea that we have to empirically prove something or it doesn't exist is ridiculous. People do not actually live this way. We have not empirically proved all the inner workings of consciousness, yet we're perfectly happy thinking. And basically, Anselm is saying this. If you believe in platonic forms, then God is the greatest thing 
than which no other thing can be thought. And that's that. If you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in, in Platonic forms, then you, you can't believe in God. And you're, you're the, the fool mentioned in Psalm 52, and you can just throw it all out. Well, we're going to wrap up this segment. Um, unless, Anthony, do you have any other thoughts on this? Well, um, it's probably a little bit, you know, after conclusion now. But I was going to say, you know, honestly, the language of triggered has has honestly almost become something like to be admired in yeah. in today's society. Like if you become someone who are triggered, especially in regards to some virtue signaling issue, it's a good thing. And I've heard yeah. this used at school. People would be like, oh, my gosh, they were so triggered. And it's just funny because it's like, you know, is that really how you want someone to be behaving? Yeah. About a serious like yeah, topic or issue, you know, and I I don't I don't I don't yeah. believe so. Morality is in a bad place in our day and age. And that's we'll discuss that later for time purposes. We've got to move on. All right, so we'll be back with our conversation on the apocalypse. Okay, so we're going to wrap up our conversation with one on the apocalypse, particularly on the concept of millennialism. And yes, I am of the age group, which is called millennials. And we are going to talk about millennialism, and those two words have nothing to do with one another. So this is what millennialism basically boils down to. But it pretty much boils down to a question. How do you feel about Christ's kingdom and how that relates to Christ's return? Now, for some, they believe that the kingdom is purely in the future. And there's a lot of ways this manifests. People say, well, the kingdom is in heaven. It's not here on earth. It's something in the future. And that Christ's kingdom will only begin after his arrival. So he will, he's gone into heaven. He will come back in, in return. There will be a reign for a thousand years, but it's out there in the future. It is not now. Now, to contrast that, Others believe that Christ's kingdom is already amongst us. Christ will return someday, but the kingdom is already here. It's not just something that exists after death. It's not something that exists on another plane, such as in heaven. Or It's not only those things. It's something which is also here. And here and now is a place where we need to be working. For some, they believe that after a thousand years period, that Christ will come at the end of that. Though a lot of people have really disregarded the, the specific detail of a thousand years. They just say there's a period Christ will come at the end. Some will say that the timeline is completely irrelevant, but it boils down to this. How do you feel about Christ's kingdom? Is it something here and now, or is it in the future? Now, you may ask why I discuss this, because it can be a confusing topic, and it's got some big words in it. But the reason why I want us to discuss this is a bit it matters about how we behave now. It, it changes how we behave now. If we see the, the kingdom of God as a purely futuristic matter, then we may just sit around and focus and wait on that. We may see ourselves in some sort of turmoil that's in the moment, but nothing matters because there's going to be a change in the future. But if we see ourselves as living in the kingdom now, then we may be motivated to do things here and now, and we don't want to let the world just be in perpetual chaos because we realize we have a responsibility to bring the kingdom of God here. 
All right, so let's go to the Apocalypse, and let's read it from the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Anthony, would you read for us? Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, or the abyss, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a short while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed are the blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Now, a quick uh, overview of that is that an angel throws a devil into the abyss where he is bound for a thousand years. He would stay there, kept from deceiving, kept from deceiving until those years are ended. After that, he must be set free for some short time. The souls who had not received the mark of the beast came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, the same period Satan would be locked away. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the souls would await until the end of the millennium. At the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released. Alright, on a complete side note here, and for time purposes I shouldn't share this, but I'm going to. You may have noticed in the, the video earlier today uh, with Montanus, there was a little bit of a, a looming figure in the background. There's a little bit of a dark figure. The story in the book of Revelation of Satan, there's some people who hypothesize this is actually referring to a historical figure. And there was a, another ancient heretic who's a bit of a Gnostic as well, Marcion, from the first few centuries of Christianity. Marcion was called by Polycarp, another Christian saint and a bishop of Smyrna from a long time ago. Polycarp referred to Marcion as the firstborn of Satan. Um, not that I'm alluding to anything that we'll be learning about in the future, but um, Polycarp Holmes and the, the terrible professor Marcion will be something we will explore in the future. But back to millennialism. How in the world do we see ourselves serving in the kingdom? After we read this text in Revelation, and it's quite an ambiguous text, it's not something that we can just easily transfer into a moral teaching. We're left with the task of how do we see ourselves living in the kingdom? Do we just wait for this text to manifest into a way that we really can't foresee? Or do we go out and start building the kingdom now? Are we in limbo or not? Anthony, what are your thoughts on this and this whole subject of do we wait for a thousand-year reign in the future or is it here and now? What are your thoughts? Well, um, I think, you know, it is it is important as Christians to find an orthodoxy in this eschatology. But I would also say that, you know, regardless of whether or not you think that there will be an age on this current earth to come in the future that, you know, Christ will reign over and he, that he's not reigning over the entirety of creation now. 
or you think that you know his reign and age is here and now i think either way we're called to change chaos to order where it is you know so um certainly christians should be focused on you know discipleship and bringing transformation to you know all of creation which includes other people and uh aside from that I think that this is a really, really interesting topic of eschatology, and I would love to do more study in it. Yeah, and whenever we get on the topic of eschatology and people asking, when does the kingdom of heaven begin? When does the Christ return? My thoughts are, are, they always go to this one place of, well, time is somewhat contingent upon mass and space. I never can get that out of my head on this conversation. So I don't think it matters much if we rule when particularly this happens. I think it's a bit silly when people take it to the pathological extreme of saying it happens in this year, you know, Christ returns on November 11th, 2011 or something like that. Either way, I don't think it so much matters what date and timeline issues we put with it because we have to vision that the kingdom of God is here now. We need to be building it here now. And from the theological perspective I come from, it's that, yes, Christ is going to return, but we need to be building the kingdom here and now. And so that's where we're going to end this conversation today. And we'll go ahead and wrap up our program. I hope you enjoyed our, our podcast today. If you did, please leave us a review. And if you really like the program, the best thing you can do to help us out is to share our content. Invite someone to come and join us. That will help us out tremendously. And on that, you can find us on Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, CastBox, YouTube. Please enjoy our content and have a blessed day.